Hello, thanks for tuning in to the West Side Podcast. This is where we're going to be posting some of the audio from our gatherings on Sundays, and we're hoping to develop some other content that we're excited to share with you in the future. West Side's vision is to reconcile people to God through the grace of Jesus, step by step. And we really hope that this podcast helps you do just that. We hope it helps you get closer to Jesus. We hope that you would be reconciled to God and not only that, be reconciled to the relationships around you and to the city that you live in, wherever that happens to be. Again, thanks for tuning in and enjoy. Beth, would you read the scripture for us tonight? Today's scripture comes from Paul's second letter to Timothy, chapter 2, verses 10 through 17, and Hebrews chapter 4, verses 12 through 13. You, however, know all about my teaching, my way of life, my purpose, faith, patience, love, endurance, persecutions, sufferings, what kinds of things happened to me in Antioch, Iconium, Lystra, the persecutions I endured. Yet the Lord rescued me from all of them. In fact, Everyone who wants to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted, while evildoers and imposters will go from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. But as for you, continue in what you have learned and have become convinced of, because you know those from whom you learned it, and how from infancy you have known the holy scriptures, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. All scripture is God-breathed, and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness, so that the servant of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. For the word of God is alive and active, sharper than any double-edged sword. It penetrates even, uh, even to dividing soul and spirit, joints and marrow. It judges the thoughts and attitudes of the heart. Nothing in all creation is hidden from God's sight. Everything is uncovered and laid bare before the eyes of him to whom we must give account. This is God's word. Thank you. Uh, we're in a sermon series about doubt. And as we've said over these last three weeks, our third week into it. So if you're, if you're kind of just showing up, um, this is a great night for you to be here. Because we're talking about something that I, uh, I really, really am passionate about tonight. Um, as we've said the last couple of weeks, healthy churches talk about doubt. Healthy churches talk about doubt. Unhealthy churches don't talk about doubt. Healthy families talk about doubt. Unhealthy families don't talk about doubt. And uh, we want to be a healthy church, and therefore we have to acknowledge that, man, there's, we have a lot of questions. And some of them are these questions that have gone unanswered for us, and there's things that we wrestle with. And so we're just taking some time to, to just unpack some things and talk about it, because here's my contention, that doubt isn't necessarily a bad thing, because doubt can be a legitimate space to encounter God. Let me say that again. Doubt can be a legitimate space to encounter God. Because sometimes when we're sometimes we are doubting things that should be doubted <laughs> because they're like they're like false versions of Christianity that we should deconstruct so that we can get to the heart, to the root of it. And sometimes in our questions that we ask, we dive in deeper and the Lord just reveals new stuff to us. And so doubt can be a, a healthy, legitimate space to encounter God. But unfortunately, here's kind of what happens. And this is a gross overgeneralization, but we could probably say this. We could say that usually churches on the conservative side of things, conservative side churches kind of on, the, on this side when, you know, they don't handle doubt well, meaning like if you grew up in a really conservative church, that if you had some questions or some doubts, they were like, you unbeliever, 
you are not believing. You, you need to have faith, you know? So doubts in, in that sort of context are squashed. But on this side, more progressive churches, if we could call them that way, um, progressive Christianity tends to champion doubt. It's, uh, it's, like, it's like a badge of honor. They valorize it in the name of authenticity and being true to yourself. And we're just trying to like thread the needle here at Westside where we want to recognize that both are wrong. Both are wrong. On one hand, we can find God in the midst of our questions and our doubts that wrestling is an important part of the Christian walk. And then on the other side of the coin, as last I checked, doubt is not one of the fruit of the Spirit. And so, and so we just, we just in that tension of just how do we question and doubt and do this and yet at, this, at the same time not make it the, the destination, but make it be one of the steps on our journey. Uh, so anyways, um, so glad that we're doing this together. And as I've said a bunch of weeks, you might be here and you might be in a deep season of just wrestling and doubt and deconstructing your faith. And if that's you, you are in the right place. We are so glad you're here. I mean, this is a safe place. Step by step, we're just, un- we're just, we're just letting Jesus untie the knots for us. Or maybe you're here and you feel like, ah, you know, I'm good. I don't have a lot of doubts. Well, if that's you, then I'd say, don't, don't tune out because even if maybe you know everything, you know, you've been like, I've been around pastor. I kind of know what you're going to say about this topic. That's fine. You're probably smarter than me, but also I don't want you to think through the lens of, do I know this? I want you to think of through the lens of, can I share this with someone else? Because no doubt you've got people in your life that are walking through doubt. And so, and they're not necessarily going to come talk to me or be in, and be at church, but they know you. And so are you equipped? Are you prepared to just help people uh, process some of this stuff? So think through it in that lens. Uh, but tonight I want to talk about this, the Bible, because the, the Bible is one of these things that a lot of people, this is where they really struggle. This is where they really have these big doubts. and like, man, what, what's the deal with this? Now, I was raised, uh, I'm so grateful for my parents. I was raised in a house where the Bible was valued and we read it and my parents read it and they tried to live it out. I am very, very grateful. Um, I'm very grateful that I have grown up in churches that have valued scripture, that, that sermons are based on the Bible and not on some song I heard on the radio three weeks ago, you know? That's the kind of church that we're gonna be, t- that we are as well. Um, we're, we're, we're like rooted in this. Um, and that's the kind of house I, was, I grew up in. I, every summer I went to VBS, which is vacation, Bible school, right? And we even had songs about the Bible. It was the B-I-B-L-E. Yes, that's the book for me. I stand alone on the word of God, the B-I-B-L-E. There we go. See, some of you know that one. Um, And then you don't even have to be a part of church to know this one. Jesus loves me, this I know. Why? For the... All right. Yeah, we have song. You know what? Even even growing up, we had a Bible superhero named Salty. Anybody remember Salty? Anybody? I got a picture of Salty. Remember that was that was like that was my childhood right there. All right, listening to Petra and Amy Grant and and Salty. So the Bible was just like a really, really, really big part of, of me growing up. And here's the here's what happens though. Maybe you got a similar story, but this is kind of everybody that grew up in church, like I did, is you know, you're know you presented with these Bible stories and you're given Bible stories in Sunday school and usually have like a, like a kid's Bible and it has some very, uh, cool, all the cool stories in there, but they don't necessarily give you all the details and they're certainly not bringing any attention to the people that die in the Old Testament. You know what I mean? Those usually aren't in any of the kids' Bibles. And so you get older and you start to like encounter, oh my goodness, there's stuff in here that I never knew was in here. This is wild. I remember my brother and I in church and we should have been listening to the sermon, but we heard about this book called The Song of Songs. 
We were like, oh my goodness, there is some stuff in here, you know? And, uh, and you, start to, you start to ask big questions and those are good, that's healthy, that's a part of the process of, of faith. And if you're in a context where people say, hey, those are great questions, let's talk about it, then, you're, then, then that's a really, really great thing you're gonna be able to process. But a lot of people grow up in a, in a place perhaps where they couldn't ask those questions and so they weren't given some good answers and they weren't directed to some places that would help and so it's been tough. And I always remember when I was in high school, I was, you know, just like really firm in my faith. But I remember I talked to a, to a guy who, who wasn't, who wasn't a Christian and he was, he, uh, I don't remember why we started talking about the Bible, but he was talking about the Bible and he was like, you believe in the Bible? And I was like, straight tootin' I do, you know, like, of course. And he says, well, what about people from other religions? Because they have their own sacred texts. And I was like, yeah. And he's like, well, how come you think that your sacred text is better than all of their sacred texts? Like, which one, how do you know that yours is right and theirs is wrong? And I was like, that's a good question. I don't really know how to answer. Isn't this how life works too? Somebody asks a question and, you're, and, you know, and you might feel dumb in the moment, but also that launches you on a season of discovery, or at least it should. Now, you know, now you're like, how would I answer that question? So you just start reading and you start looking. And uh, so uh, a lot of people maybe perhaps have bumped up against this or, or, or been given pieces, bits and pieces of it or heard some things on their podcast that they listen to or a, ra- or a radio show or a t- television show. And they have all these misconceptions and, and notions about what this is all about. Because this contains a lot of, a lot of challenging stuff that, are, that is important to wrestle with, like violence and seemingly genocide that God, that God commands. Uh, there's parts having to do with slavery. There's parts about women being silent in church. There's laws that don't make a lot of sense to us. And it seems as if now people then just kind of pick and choose which ones they want to follow. Uh, It's got some sexual ethics in here that feel to our culture very outdated to a lot of people. Uh, What about miracles? What's the deal with those? It all seems just kind of like, is it, it seems like a little bit of a fairy tale. Uh, What about discrepancies? You know, we've heard about like there's these errors and discrepancies and it doesn't agree with, with, with itself on all these places. And what are we supposed to do with that? And, and how do we know it wasn't just all made up by some people and wasn't it translated and then copied and then changed? You know, we've heard about like how the Bible has been changed and like, what about the original documents and oh my goodness. And so at every turn, it seems as if there's a lot of reasons to kind of doubt this and to deconstruct it. And here's what I want to say to that. On one hand, many people have tried to ignore all these questions and say, oh, those questions don't matter. Um, And other people have just taken the Bible and just used it as a weapon on other people. Uh, Some have decided to just pick and choose which part they want to keep and which parts they want to ignore. And then still others have just decided to just toss it out altogether. Just, I'm done. I just can't trust a book. I can't trust a religion where it seems like there's just, what what if I can't put my trust in this? Well then, you know, I can't do it. I'm gone. I'm out. There's too many things wrong with it. Um, So tonight, a couple things. I just want to say, I want you to know that I think that the Bible invites us to wrestle with with these questions. And I think that the Bible is strong enough to stand up to these questions. The Bible's strong enough to stand up to all of these objections and questions. And the Bible actually invites us in to wrestle. And I really truly believe that the Bible is exactly what Paul says to Timothy, what Beth just read. He says that the Holy Scriptures are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. All Scripture, as Paul is saying to Timothy, is God-breathed. 
and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness so that the servant of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. Three things tonight, all right? Just some things to consider. This is gonna be rapid fire, guys. I don't have a lot of time. And <laughs> this is like a four-week sermon series right here, all right? But I'm, ex- I'm excited. Things to consider. I wanna talk about the dark side and then the light side, okay? Things to consider, the dark side first, and then the light side. Um, first, things to consider. Uh, first of all, consider the impact that this thing has had on the world. There is no book like this on planet Earth. There's no book like this that's been outlawed, burned, preserved, translated in pretty much every language. And you could just go anywhere on the globe and, and it's still outlawed in places today on, this, on the planet. And you can go anywhere to every, to every people group. You can go all across the globe and this book changes people changes people because it introduces them to the person and to the work and to the life and the death and the, and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Um, number two, uh, realize that your questions aren't new. My questions about this book aren't new. You might think that you've come up with a brain buster, like nobody's answered, nobody's had this objection about the Bible before. And I guarantee you, people have wrestled with this through the centuries. And so it should invite us into a process of reading, of study, of looking deeper into some of the things, that, the, the issues and the things that you wrestle with. I'm gonna address just a few tonight, but there's so many others and there are such great resources out there. Every once in a while, I'll talk to somebody that are like, oh, I don't believe in the Bible. Bible, it's all a bunch of hogwash. And I'm like, well, tell me why you think that. Well, I listened to a podcast once and I read, and I read half a blog. And so I know. <laughs> and it's like, man, you, you have to dig a, a bit deeper than that. All right. There's so much good theology, so much good history, so much good um, study about so many of your questions. So just realize that your questions aren't new. Number three is we should approach the Bible with humility, not arrogance. Hum, tons of humility and not arrogance. Sometimes you'll, you'll meet people and they're like, they'll say this. They'll say like, well, it says it and that settles it. Have you heard that before? Um, I read the Bible, it says it, that settles it. Well, okay, I'm glad you have that ap- approach. However, the Bible is much more complicated than we give it credit for sometimes. It's much more nuanced. I mean, there's so many different things in here that require just, that requires just good scholarship and just you know, deep, deep thinking. And so we should approach the scripture with humility instead of arrogance. I'll give you one example. One of the things about Bible, um, about, about interpreting the Bible, which is a huge field of study, is what things in here, let's, let's think about things in the New Testament. Let's say in particular in the book of Acts. We know uh, some things about what the early church did and how they met and what they did. And one problem or one thing that, that, that interpreters have to think through is what things in, say, the book of Acts are prescriptive, meaning which things are, is the Lord telling us through the scriptures that we must always do for all time, and what things are descriptive, meaning the scriptures describing to us what they did in their time, but it isn't necessarily what we're supposed to do in our time. Does that make sense? So for instance, the early church, they didn't meet in rooms like this. They met in homes and in synagogues. So does that mean that we are sinning because we're meeting in a room like this? Should we be meeting in homes and synagogues? That's what the early church did, you know? Every once in a while, one time I was at my previous church and we had just installed electronic check-in for all the kids. And so we had electronic check-in and the guy comes up to me and he's like, these computers, we shouldn't have these in here. This is church, No no room for computers in church. The early church did not have computers. So we shouldn't either. And I was like, sir, is that coffee that you have in your hand right there? 
Oh, man. Well, the early church didn't have coffee either. I don't think. Did you drive here today? Did you come in here today on your camel? Oh, you drove a car. Oh, sorry. The early church didn't have cars. You know what I mean? It's like, wait a minute. It's a, it's a challenge. And so we need to approach the scriptures with a lot of humility. What? I mean, there's a lot of different questions. That's important for us to remember. Next is please consider that you might actually be disturbed by something that the Bible doesn't actually teach. Please consider that there might be some things that you think the Bible teaches that the Bible doesn't actually teach. Um, it's really, really important. I've used this example for a lot of years, but uh, it's the perfect one. Polygamy. Polygamy is in the Bible. We read some of these people from the Old Testament, like Abraham and David and some of these heroes of the faith. And guess what? They had a lot of wives. And so what are we supposed to do with that? What are we supposed to do with that? Well, the funny thing is, is you could be somebody that reads this book and say, oh my gosh, we can't believe this stuff. It, it, it promotes polygamy. Everybody's a polygamist in here, it seems like. And if the Bible promotes polygamy, oh my gosh, then what other things is it probably promoting that I can't, I just can't get behind. Like we should just throw this whole thing out. That would be so sad to believe that because sure, the Bible has a lot of polygamy, but guess what? It doesn't work out well for anyone. It's horrible. In fact, in fact, if you just want to like repeat this after me, um, I, think I, ha I think I have the words on the screen. This is just one of the things that we learned from the Old Testament. If you have a favorite wife, say that with me. If you have a favorite wife, then you won't have a happy life. <laughs> All right? That's just what the, what, that's what the, is there a lot of polygamy in here? Yes, there is. And it does not work out well for anyone. It's a complete disaster. And so on first reading, you would think that the Bible is promoting polygamy, 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 but when really, do you know what the Bible's doing? It's subverting it. It's cutting it out at the knees. It's saying, no, this is, this is not, this did not work. Don't do this. You see that? So it would be a shame to just throw this book away because you think it promotes polygamy when really it so doesn't. It points us in, in another direction entirely. Um, please consider the history and the context. Um, it's a library of books written over a 1,500-year period, 44 different authors on three different continents, all non-white people, all non-white people from the, from the, from the East all of the authors of the scripture. And it's filled with all sorts of different genres of scripture. There's eyewitness reporting, there's poetry, there's history, there's, there's prophecy, there's prophetic vision. There's, there's all sorts of different genres in here. And so we have to, if we're gonna respect the Bible, we have to respect the genres too. Sometimes people ask me, do you, do you, do you believe that the Bible is literal? Or can you read the Bible literally? Or do you believe that the Bible is literally true? Can you take the Bible literally? And my answer is always, Yes, yes, absolutely. Some parts are literally poetry. Some parts are literally apocalyptic vision. Some parts are literally eyewitness accounts. Some parts are literally history. Some parts are literally poetic and metaphorical. So we have, we have, yeah, you can take the Bible liter uh, literally, but what's the genre? What's the context? All of that is so, so important. And what's cool is this unified story that leads us to Jesus. That's the whole point of the Bible. A unified story that leads us to Jesus, that God used human beings, just broken human beings, but in the way that he revealed himself to them and as they were writing down scripture that in some, in some kind of incredible way that God's very presence was there and that they were inspired. And so the scriptures that we have are God's words to us for us today. Um, it's an incredible thing. Um, but let's get, talk about the dark side. 
um, there's a lot of deconstruction that happens of the Bible. And uh, unfortunately, some of it is really destructive and hurts us. I mentioned Charles Taylor, a, a really famous uh, a really famous philosopher, he calls the age that we live in today the age of authenticity that we're living in. And in his mind, the highest value of this age of authenticity is to be true to yourself, to be true to yourself, that your feelings and emotions are the most important thing about you and they determine what's true for you. And so that's why we have the phrases, you do you. Um, follow your heart. These are all marks of the age of authenticity that we live in. The problem is that every cultural moment, like we're in a cultural moment right now that believes this, that many people believe. The problem is that cultural moments change and different values in different cultures, they change. They change. And so what, uh, that's, that's been called ethnocentrism. It's this idea that your culture and your cultural moment are more important and have higher value than other people's cultures and other people's cultural moment. It's a little bit like how, for you, the best music that will ever be invented was the music that came out when you were in high school. It's a little bit like that. Isn't that the best music? The best music is always the best music that came out when you were in high school. And so we have the same thing. We believe that cultures believe the same thing, that their like, moment is the best. But the problem is that changes. Um, I'm going to give you an example. Um, Thomas Jefferson, one of our founding fathers and you know, helped craft the, uh, the, uh, you know, some of our early documents in our early country. You probably know this about Thomas Jefferson, but uh, I have a picture of Thomas Jefferson's Bible here. It's his actual Bible. You can, I think it's in the Smithsonian or maybe it's in Washington, D.C. Do you notice anything about, about uh, his Bible? So what Thomas Jefferson did, Thomas Jefferson was a child of the enlightenment. He really believed that like you can explain everything rationally through science. And so he believed that miracles, anything miraculous was completely bonkers. And so he would call himself not necessarily a Christian, but a deist. He believed that God was real, but that God kind of created us and then kind of moved on to other stuff. But he did not believe in miracles. And so he went through his Bible and literally cut out every piece, every miracle, the resurrection of Jesus, everything else that was supernatural. And he cut it out because it didn't agree with his cultural moment. Now you and I have probably have never taken some scissors to the scriptures. Yeah, you probably haven't. I haven't taken, a, taken actual physical scissors and cut pieces out. We haven't done that, but you know what? We've done it emotionally. We've done it intellectually. We do it all the time. Oh, this doesn't fit with my cultural moment. This doesn't fit with kind of how I want my life to go. So it's just easy to just cut the parts out that don't fit and keep the parts that make me feel good about myself. Um, this is why many people today are deconstructing the Bible. It's simply, it's not because they don't believe in the, the original documents or the original languages or the textual criticism stuff. Really, it's they just simply wanna live however they want. You and I have to be careful that we don't read the scriptures and do exactly what Thomas Jefferson did because it's in us to do this, that we take the scriptures and we, you know, we, we, we say we believe in them, but yet then we, t we take some things and we say, oh, this doesn't really quite fit with me. And so I'm just gonna leave that part out or I'm just gonna explain that away. It's really easy for people to deconstruct the scriptures just so they can sleep with whoever they want. And so in... Um, when we do that with the Bible, what's funny is that we're not actually following God at all, we're following ourselves. It's still a religion, but it's the religion of self. And friends, it's the most popular religion on planet Earth, the religion of self. Um, and so in the words of, of A.J. Swoboda, 
Um, my friend, he says, we aren't called to love the God that we want. We're called to love the God who is. There's a dark side to, to deconstructing scripture because we can just make it say whatever we want. Now, there's a light side of deconstructing scripture because there's a, process, there's a part of deconstructing scripture that might actually be really, really good thing. Let me give you an example. Is, isn't it true that people have misunderstood, misread, and abused the Bible to do some horrific things? Aren't there some really bad readings of the Bible out there? Yeah. Yes, absolutely. Um, so my contention is that um, some understandings and ways that the Bible has been abused should be doubted and deconstructed. Um, we shouldn't deconstruct the Bible. We, could, we should deconstruct bad readings of the Bible. Amen? Can you agree with that with me? Um, uh, real quick example, Genesis 3. Just a few pages in to the scriptures. Remember God said to Adam and Eve, don't, don't eat from this tree. Trust me, trust me. You can eat from all the other trees, but just not that one tree. So how many rules are there at the very beginning? It's like one rule. This is a good God. But then the serpent comes and there's this kind of this crazy moment, like the serpent comes and, and you'll notice just from the text and it's really subtle, but it's actually really profound that, that Satan comes in and the serpent comes in and says to Eve, did God really say that you can't eat from any of the trees in the garden? Do you see that subtle shift? Do you see how he shifted it a little bit? That God's, God said that you can eat from all the trees except for one, but Satan's like, did God really say that you can't eat from any of the trees in the garden? Do you know what Satan's doing? He's, he's, he's twisting what God said. And then, and then later on, uh, and then later on Eve's talking and, and, she, and she says back to the serpent, yeah, well, God said that we, 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 can, we can eat from all the trees, but we can't eat from that one and we, and we can't touch the tree either. Now, we don't know, we don't know if like there was another conversation that God had with Eve, but earlier in the text, God never said that you can't touch the tree. He just said that you can't eat from the tree. And it's just a really interesting thing in there because here's, here's what I take from it. From the very beginning, from the first pages of scripture, God's words are being twisted and people are adding to God's words things that he never said. And friends, that's a huge problem still today. The scriptures get twisted, things get added and it becomes a really, really, really big problem. So a couple things, some examples of this, of just bad readings of scripture, okay? Number one is a bad reading of scripture is to do this, is treat it like a weapon instead of a lens. Treat it like a weapon instead of a lens. Um, notice that the scripture that we read from Hebrews says that the word of God is a double-edged sword. Do you remember that part? I love that, double-edged sword. Um, real quick, here's what I take from that is sometimes people take that metaphor and you know, they use Bible verses as just like arrows and weapons on each other. People do this in marriages too. You can't do that, the Bible says this. You're, woman, you're supposed to submit to me because the Bible says that you know, I'm the head. You know, people use the scripture and they just, hey kids, you're supposed to obey me because the Bible says obey. And we can just use it on each other like a weapon. But what I find interesting is it's a double-edged sword. You know what that means? That it's, it's designed to cut both ways. And a lot of people use the Bible for this, but never for this. The Bible's supposed to first come in here and cut my heart open and deposit grace in my heart. And so then that changes the way that I use the scripture. Now I'm gonna use it as a weapon on others, but now it's, it's cleansing me, it's working on me, it's transforming me. 
And if I can be a transformed person, then I get to be a part of helping transform other people too. It's like what Jesus said that, you know, with the log in your eye, don't try to take the speck out when you've got the log in your eye. Don't use this as a weapon on others when you're not using it on yourself. The Bible is not a weapon. It's supposed to be a lens in which we see our, wor- our, our own hearts. We see the world. We see, we see what um, he has done. Um, in our lives. Number two is uh, one bad reading of scripture is to take one verse out of context and make it say whatever you want it to say. This has been done over and over and over again. Uh, Take a verse out and make it say whatever you want to say. Because see, the Bible isn't just a picture, it's an album. It's a picture album. And just like if I went into your house and just found a picture album and just opened it up and just picked one picture and said, this is exactly what your family's like. I, pro- I might pick a picture where you guys are all just like doing, you're looking ridiculous, you know? And it'd be like, no, that's not what my family's like. No, there's a whole album here. You know, there's an album, there's context. You have to look at the whole album to get a clear picture. But unfortunately, people have done this with the scriptures. They use the scripture as a magic eight ball. Have you, seen, have you guys seen a magic eight ball before? There's a picture. Uh, remember these things? You shake the magic eight ball and then you just kind of like, you ask a question and then it, you know, it comes up. Because if you do, if you use the Bible like this, you can make it say whatever you want it to say, okay? So here's, here's an illustration for you, okay? Here we go. Check this out. We're gonna go on a little road trip of treating the Bible like a magic eight ball, okay? So you take the Bible and you're like, okay, first question is, should I marry her? All right, should I marry her? 1 Corinthians 7.28, but those who marry will face many troubles in this life, and I want to spare you this. Oh, okay. Uh, should I go to that frat party? All right. Should I go to the frat party? Um, drink and let your nakedness be exposed. Habakkuk 2.16. Oh, I guess I should go. Should, should we send our kids to Bethel or 4J? Bethel or 4J? Let's see what the Bible has to say about this. Oh, go to Bethel and sin. Amos 4.4. These are real verses, by the way. I'm not making this up. Uh, What's most important in life, God? Let's see, what's most important? Okay, what's most important? A feast is made for laughter, wine makes life merry, and money is the answer for everything. Ecclesiastes 10.19. Is it okay to smoke marijuana? Is it okay? Can I smoke pot? Is that all right? Here we go. Oh, and God said, behold, I have given you every herb that is on the face of all the earth. Genesis 129. Oh, uh, let's see. Should it be a chest, shoulder, try day or a legs, back, and by day? Let's see. Look, which one is it? Which, where should, what should I do in the gym today? Oh, 2 Corinthians. Do not be unequally yoked. Oh. All right, last one. Uh, what should I do about this math test? Lord, I need help with the math test. What should I do? And the scripture says, and God said, go forth and multiply. Um, thanks for humoring me. These are dad jokes here. Uh, unfortunately, people have done that with the Bible and used the Bible to do some horrific, 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 horrific things. I'm bringing it in for a landing here. Um, number three, my next point is just people have used the Bible to do horrible things. I've just got a couple examples. The Crusades comes up pretty often. There's a lot of people that back then just told people because the Bible was in Latin and then common people couldn't read Latin. And so it was just told to them that if you go and fight in the crusades and kill a bunch of infidels, you're gonna go to heaven and your whole family will go too. And so a lot of people said, sign me up. I wanna go to heaven. And I think God was looking at that whole thing and shaking his head and saying, it's not me. It's not me. 
One teaching of the, the Catholic Church from a long time ago was the, the teaching of indulgences. If you've ever been to St. Peter's Basilica in, in Rome, it's incredible. And you're in there and you're in there and you're thinking, this is the most amazing place. And the other thing you have to remember is that it was paid for by some really bad Bible reading, some really bad doctrine. Because the, as, the, as the saying went, there was this guy named Johann Tetzel. He would go around and he would preach to the common people. And he would have this line that he would say. He would say, every time the coffer rings, which is the coffer is like where you throw your money. He would say, every time the coffer rings, a soul from purgatory springs. If you give money to the church, then, hey, that grandma that died a couple years ago, yeah, she's probably in purgatory. But if you give more money, she'll go to heaven. And people believed it. And they gave their money and they gave their money believing that this was what God said and God's like, nope. I've got a picture for you here, another example. Um, this is a real Bible. You can go to the Smithsonian, it's there. It's called the Slave Bible, the Slave Bible. See, the early plantation owners didn't mind their slaves reading the Bible, especially the parts that said, hey, slaves, obey your earthly masters. They loved that part. But the parts of the Bible that called slaves to go free, like the whole book of Exodus, they removed it. They took every part out in the Bible that talked about slaves going free, talked about brotherhood, talked about how we love each other in Christ. They took all those pieces out and gave it to the slaves. Here's what I'd say, and I'll, I'll finish here is what was needed wasn't a deconstructed Bible, but the whole Bible. What was needed in these moments was not for us to deconstruct the Bible and just make it say what we wanna say, or what was needed wasn't to say, oh, this Bible is full of you know, ridiculous stuff, let's just throw it out. No, that is not the answer. What was needed in those moments was the whole Bible. There was somebody quoted, said this, that slavery didn't end because people stopped reading the Bible. Slavery ended because people finally started reading the Bible. Martin Luther King is another great example. Do you think Martin Luther King went down into, into the, the white churches in the South and said, like, hey guys, you know, you need to lay off the Christianity. What we need is some less Christianity. That's gonna be really the answer to ending, you know, all of this, this racial tension. Do you think that's what Martin Luther King Jr. said? No, Martin Luther King Jr. went into those places and he, you know what he said? He said, no, you don't need less Christianity. You need real Christianity. And he said, let righteousness flow down like waters and, and justice from mighty springs from the book of Amos. Martin Luther King Jr. said, no, 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 you don't need less Christianity. You need true Christianity. And I just want to tell you that there's a lot of things that are wrestling, that we need to wrestle with in here. But what the world needs isn't a deconstructed Bible. What the world needs is a whole Bible. What the world needs is for us to come alongside of it and let it transform us and make us new as we continue to just wrestle with these big, big, big questions. Um, lastly, I think a lot of people are deconstructing this Bible, but really they're not really deconstructing Christ because a lot of people love Christ. Is this, they've just had a lot of bad experiences with Christians. And every time in history where the church has abused power, Every time in history where Christians have abused this and used this for their own devices and for their own purposes, every time churches have gone off the rails and just started teaching wacky doctrine and people getting hurt and people getting used and abused, they weren't doing it because of this. They were doing it in spite of this. Did you hear what I just said? 
They weren't doing it because of this. They were actually working against what this says. If you've got issues with this, I guarantee you, it can stand up to your questions. And it is a lifelong process of discovery. Discovery. I'll pray for us. Father, um, Lord, we just, uh, we ask that um, as we just process the, the, these holy scriptures, these scriptures that you have given us, it's your very words to us. Lord, I just pray that we would be humbled. We'd be humbled and we would come to it like children. We would come to it just with tons of humility and that we would let it transform us. Lord, I just, I just have this picture, just as we close, I just have this picture of, of the scriptures being this sword, this double-edged sword. And Lord, would, would we truly be the kind of people that never use it Never use it for, for just, just using on other people, for, for gaining power for ourselves, by, you know, by making us more self-righteous because we're right and other people are wrong. Like, like we wouldn't let the Bible, that's not what it's for, that we would first let it cut towards us. It transforms us, that it would read our mail first and that we would fall humbly at your feet. We would receive your grace and that we would be transformed people. Lord, I pray that that would happen. And on the other side, Lord, we repent for, for making the Bible say what we want it to say, for cutting parts out that don't agree with our particular lifestyle or our particular view of the world. Lord, we pray that we would worship the God who is, not the God that we want or not the God even that we think that should be, but the God who is. Lord, we pray that that would be the hallmark of who we are as Christ followers. And so, um, Lord, would you uh, just go with us as we leave this place? And Lord, truly, as we engage in scripture, as we ask deep questions, Lord, Holy Spirit, be with us, untangle the knots, um, transform us and make us new. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.